0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know... Signed, sealed and delivered, tech giant IBM closes its $34 billion deal to buy Red Hat. We'll be speaking to the CEOs. Houston, we're going public. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic comes to market before heading to space. And Kill Bill, Hong Kong's chief executive, says the extradition bill is dead but doesn't formally withdraw it. Hmm. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. once again to First Move and another jam-packed show as you just heard there. Not, though quite as jam-packed as Fed Chief Jay Powell's schedule this week. Take a look at this, because this is the short-term focus for investors, so I'll keep reiterating. We're going to be binge-washing the Fed chairman this week, and over the next few days, he's speaking at the Boston Federal Reserve Bank today, then he's on Capitol Hill on Wednesday and Thursday. We'll call it a plethora of pals this week. Ordinarily, you know, I wouldn't be so hyperactive about Fed speak, but given that payrolls report, given the sensitivity around the prospect of rate cuts, even coming as early as July, of course, given market pricing. We'll keep looking at it. Right now, we've got stocks showing a weaker open this morning following two days of weakness. And, of course, we've got European Stocks lower, two German stocks down some 1%, drag lower by a further dent in Deutsche Bank stock and a profit warning from the chemical giant BASF. More details on what they're saying just a moment. But what we've seen so far in uh, in July, of course, is that the dunes at big jump has not materialized. We've seen a spa, star-spangled uh, sogginess, let's call it that questions being asked about uh, the Fed's progress on rate cuts and the rate path going forward, though I will say we're just 1% off the record highs that we've seen despite chatter from Wall Street about concerns on the outlook and economic uncertainty. Morgan Stanley cutting its outlook for global stocks, citing trade uncertainty and weakening manufacturing. BlackRock also cut its global growth outlook for the second half of this year, though they did say emerging market debt could do well. And as we were talking about on the show yesterday, when a quarter of all global sovereign debt is trading with negative yields, the risk reward of lofty yields in countries like Turkey perhaps look relatively more attractive. Maybe. And that could, of course, get more help for Jay Powell if he sounds very cautious this week, too. Remember what Christina Hooper of Invesco said to us yesterday? What was it? He might not give the markets what they want, but he will give them what they need. Hmm. What we need to do is get to the drivers. Within the past hour, IBM has announced it's completed its acquisition of software firm Red Hat. Claire Sebastian is live with the details on this. A whopping great tech deal, $34 billion. A move into the hybrid cloud market here, Claire. They promised the second half of this year and they have not disappointed on closing this deal swiftly. They haven't, Julia. Nine days into
2: the second half and here we have it. But this is IBM going all in when it comes to cloud computing they've been trying to refocus the business to move into these higher value higher margin areas like cloud and ai the deal is worth 34 billion dollars that's more than a quarter of ibm's entire market cap so this is really a huge investment and the hybrid cloud as you say is the key this is a an area where it's seen you know a lot of companies are moving into it's a high growth area it's where companies can move data and run applications across both the public and private cloud Uh, and red hat has open source technologies that really allows them to do that. So uh, along with IBM's scale, this is seen as something that, that could help give IBM the edge on the competition. It's been falling behind rivals like Amazon, like Google, like Microsoft in the cloud space and it really needed to do something big, according to analysts, to, to, to get it into into that space. Uh, so this is something that, that is seen as a, as, a, as a really big move for the company and, and a really big move for the CEO, Ginny Rometty.
1: Absolutely. You know, we've spoken to uh, the CEO of IBM, Ginny, of course, on a number of occasions about this move and about the drive into higher margin, high growth businesses like the cloud. To your point, though, there is fierce competition. Microsoft, Amazon, Google, who already offers similar kind of products. The argument here, and I think that some of the critics look at this and say, if this technology is open source, companies can already use other platforms via Red Hat. Why go to IBM? Why go to IBM's offering?
2: Yeah, I think that that is going to be the key going forward. How do they integrate with Red Hat? I think that's really what Wall Street is going to be watching. And the really interesting thing about this, Julia, is that Red Hat already partners with some of the competition. They have partnerships with Amazon Web Services, with Google Cloud. Now, they say when they're announcing this deal today that they're going to continue to strengthen those partnerships. So IBM is now going to be working essentially with its competition. But but look, IBM, its revenue has been declining. Its share price peaked uh, in 2013. It's never recovered those heights. Uh, so as I said,
1: it really needed to do something big to, to, to get ahead in this area. Yeah, a big bet. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that update. And we'll be joined by the CEOs of IBM and Red Hat, of course, Ginny Rometty and Jim Whitehurst later on in the show. For now, we're gonna move on to our next driver. And the space race is well and truly on. Richard Branson is taking Virgin Galactic public. Rachel Crane joins us now on this story. The first, of course, of these space giants to go public. This is the way, ultimately, to finance the push to get people into space and to become profitable
3: doing it, Rachel right, Julia? Um, uh, now, Virgin Galactic has announced that later this year they will go public uh, with social capital Hedia Sophia, Sophia taking a 49% stake in the company. Now, this uh, merger has been uh, valued at $1.5 billion. And of course, we know that Virgin Galactic uh, was looking for an investment last year. They turned down a billion dollar investment from the Saudi government following the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, so this this uh, merger here, it did take people by surprise, but we do know that Virgin Galactic was looking for an investment, hoping to compete in the you know the billionaire space race. Here, you have Jeff Bezos, his Blue Origin, saying that they expect to send a, a space tourist um, to space by the end of the year. So you know this is getting very heated here, and Virgin Galactic looking to stay ahead of the curve. So this investment will surely help them do that. Julia, I will be speaking with Richard Branson in just a couple of minutes to get some details on what this means for the company. What this means for those over 600 space tourists that are hoping to go uh, and fly on Virgin Galactic spaceship soon? So lots of unanswered questions here, and hopefully we'll have some answers soon, Julia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 600 people have what given up 80 million dollars potentially for that uh, for that seat, the ticket to get to space. I wish I could join them, quite frankly, um, Rachel. But to your point about some of the fierce competition here, this is an interesting way to finance it. What's the likelihood that we see the likes of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, of SpaceX even, looking at something like this specifically, a SpaceX breaking away to try and finance this separately. Well, Musk has
3: famously said that he would never Take yeah. SpaceX public because the uh, market forces, you know, uh, the the focus on profit profitability and quarterly earnings that the company just wouldn't be able to weather that storm. So it's very interesting uh, to see Virgin Galactic, you know, putting the putting them up to this public scrutiny. Uh, but. Musk has certainly said that he's not looking to to make SpaceX vulnerable like that, and Bezos, of course, up until this point, has self-financed Blue Origin. So unclear if they, if Musk will you know go back on his word, uh, or if Bezos will look to the public to finance his company. But at least at this point, we know Virgin Galactic is is taking that major step.
1: Julia? Yeah, I think as uh, far as Elan said, it's once bitten, twice, twice, twice shy. Get my words out. So Rachel Crane, thank you so much for that. And we really look forward to an interview with uh, Richard Branson. How quickly do they think they can be profitable? All right. Let's move on to our next driver. Shares in BASF, German chemical maker, of course, down some 5% in training today. The firm warning that profits could drop some 30% this year. They cited a combustible mix of both trade tensions and slow growth. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. A 30% drop in earnings in 2019 compared to 2018, even with the auto-weakness, the trade tensions, agricultural concerns. Anna, I can't help thinking that perhaps they're being a little bit too aggressive here, a bit of kitchen
4: sinking perhaps going on. What do you make of what they said? Yeah, or were they just too optimistic at the beginning of the year? Now, this has taken analysts by surprise. I have to say there's been a flurry of downgrades, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan, Jefferies. And take a look at the spillover effect that we've seen on all the rival share prices. Uh, you've got their buyer, Covestro, Lanxus. All knocked off their highs. Uh, Zetradax also dragged down today. And really, this is one of those bellwether businesses. It spans so many different industries. Uh, And so it's really sounding the alarm here. Now, on the list, as you said, industrial demand is weak, particularly in Germany. That comes as no surprise, particularly if you consider those factory output numbers we got at the end of last week. Auto sector gets a special mention. Uh, BASF saying here that the uh, car production globally fell around 6% in the first half of the year. 12% in China. Talks about bad weather, that's the agriculture in North America and the ongoing trade war. That is the main topic in this report. Yeah, and that's
1: exactly where I want to go, Anna, because they did say, look, despite their hopes and their earlier predictions that we would see some kind of trade deal this year, they're now saying actually after the G20, they're not sure it's going to happen this year. I mean, that's a bold call from a company, particularly in light of broader optimism, I think, from investors
4: that that continues here. And really worrying, given that this is just the beginning of this Q2 earnings season here in Europe. It has a huge international footprint, BASF, so frankly it is very, very exposed to trade tensions. Now it says here that the economic and industrial output has slowed mainly, and I quote, due to the trade conflicts. I had hoped that this would have improved by now. It really talks about the G20 saying that, end of June G20 it thought that might have had some sort of quick resolution but it was quite clear that what came out of that summit just means that there won't be any sort of resolution in the second half of this year so Julia welcome to the European earnings season Q2 I think this might be a theme yeah
1: watch this space and we'll see it in the United States
4: I'm sure too
1: Anna Stewart great job thank you so much for that all right, let's move on now and I'll bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Donald Trump has renewed his attack on the British ambassador, taking to Twitter this morning to label him wacky, pompous and a very stupid guy. It follows leaked cables in which Kim Dorock called the Trump administration inept and clumsy. The president also rounded on Prime Minister Theresa May after Downing Street expressed support for the ambassador, saying she has made a, quote, disaster of the Brexit crisis after going her own foolish way. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi along with other U.S. lawmakers calling on the Labour Secretary Alexander Acosta to step down. Acosta cut a minimal sentence plea deal for billionaire Jeffrey Epstein back in 2007 when he faced life in prison for sex trafficking. Epstein was again charged with sex trafficking on Monday. He's pleaded not guilty. Hong Kong, protesters are rejecting the chief executive's announcement that the controversial extradition bill is, quote, dead. They accuse Carrie Lam of wordplay and say they will continue protesting until she formally withdraws the legislation. Ivan Watson is in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, fascinating to see the developments overnight. The extradition bill is dead, according to the chief exec, but clearly, as far as these protesters are concerned, trust is completely broken until that's formalized.
5: That's right. The political crisis here continues to simmer. Julia uh, Carrie Lam, the the appointed chief executive of the of the city, uh, she came out and and said she was taking steps to try to heal what she described as the rift in society. And she did mention that this extradition law, which seems to have started a cycle of a month of protests, that it is dead. Take a listen. The cause of all
6: these um, uh, grievances and confrontations is an exercise to amend the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance. I have almost immediately put a stop to the amendment exercise. But there are still lingering doubts about the Government's sincerity, or worries whether the Government will restart the process in the Legislative Council. So I reiterate here, there is no such plan. The bill is dead.
5: Well, if Carrie Lam was hoping that that would mollify or pacify the opposition movement here, immediately voices came up in protest, accusing her of playing semantics. Uh, calling the bill dead, but not withdrawing it completely from the legislative process. Uh, You had a number of university student unions rejecting uh, the possibility of a face-to-face meeting with her. Uh, They're saying that they want it done in open so that the meeting would be on equal footing. Uh, I just spoke with one of the prominent opposition uh, activists here, Joshua Wong, who said he too would not sit down face-to-face with her, arguing that Members of that Umbrella Occupy movement of five years ago that occupied the streets for nearly three months. That five of them met with her and then a majority of them then faced a variety of different criminal charges. So what's the point of doing that? You have some opposition leaders vowing to hold more protests as early as this weekend. Uh, So until that day comes, uh, Hong Kong is still facing uncertainty, a leadership that seems to be extending the olive branch, uh, but not giving in completely to the demands of the protesters, protesters vowing to come out into the streets again. And just Sunday, we saw a large protest movement and then some clashes with police at the end of that. So so this uh, city seems to still be mired in the same kind of crisis, uh, one of the worst that I've seen in the city and that probably people have seen in a generation. Back to you, Julie. Yeah,
1: it's quite fascinating, Ivan. It feels like the whole handling of this situation has been pretty tone deaf from the executive in, in Hong Kong here. And and how Carrie Lam can continue here, I think, is a, a, a sort of interesting question what next what do we think happens here are we in a sort of standoff situation until that bill formally gets withdrawn the sort of protests and the pushback seems like it's going to continue what was the catalyst for her to come out today and go okay it's dead
5: yeah i mean that may have been a step in the right direction for the opposition but you have to remember that this protest movement is not monolithic it doesn't have leaders Many of the leaders from the Occupy movement of five years ago were subsequently charged and convicted that one individual Joshua Wong had just served 100 days in prison. So the opposition movement has made it a point to try to stay amorphous so that no one person can kind of feel the wrath of the law here in Hong Kong. And as a result, you kind of get disparate demands coming from different people. Some saying, hey, we need to have an independent commission to investigate allegations of police brutality. Others saying any of the protesters who were detained must be released. Uh, other people saying that the extradition law has to be withdrawn. Others saying, hey, Kerry Lam needs to step down. Right. Meanwhile, the authorities here, uh, they try to take a softly, softly approach to the protesters, dividing them into different groups, those who protest peacefully and those who do use violence. Uh, it's a big glob right now. And that's what you get when your leaders aren't elected directly, and they're not allowed to use the authoritarian tactics to break up the protests, which are the only real uh, response that the the people on the street really have to this non-elected leadership. Julia.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Ivan Watson, thank you for that. Call me a cynic, but I just wonder whether the decision here to kill this bill was because the protesters were targeting mainland Chinese tourists. But uh, no doubt we'll talk about this again. All right, thank you for that. Still ahead, though, here on First Move, IBM's heads get a red hat. We'll speak to the tech giant CEO about sealing a $34 billion deal today. And some sparkling results. Pepsi shares bubble up as investors drink in the latest earnings numbers. All that to come. Stay it was fast moves. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where once again, it looks like we're heading for a softer open for US markets this morning. Let's get some context on what we're seeing here. We're joined now by Liz Young, Director of Market Strategy at BNY Mellon. Liz, great to have you with us. Great to be here. As always, what's going on in markets right now? We're around 1% off the highs, but I do get this feel that any good news that we get right now it's sort of bad news for markets if it means that, that it kind of questions Jay Powell's moves on rates? That's right. So the market right now is watching policy more than
7: anything else. Yeah. And as much as we want to talk about trade and we want to blame that for any moves, whether up or down, it's really about policy. Yeah. We came into the year where bad news was good news because it meant that the Fed might cut rates and then the market started to price in two rate cuts for the rest of the year. We think in our base case scenario that the Fed actually just stays on hold for the remainder of 2019.
1: Wow. I mean, we're going a- situation now on July 31st where the market's predicting and expecting a quarter of a point cut, how between now and the 31st of July, okay. is Jay Powell going to go, guys, you you kind of got it wrong here?
7: Well, you have to remember, though, he never promised to cut. No. Nope. He said that they were going to be data dependent and that they were going to be patient. And if conditions called for it, then he would ease policy. But we got a pretty good jobs number last Friday. And when we got the last jobs number that was weak, then the market really liked that and thought, great, they're going to cut rates. Now, this time, when we got a decent jobs number, I don't know that the data is there that's going to really prove to
1: him that he needs to make a move. You know, it's interesting. Um, the Federal Reserve will always say, look, we set policy for the United States. We don't set policy for the rest of the world. Right. But when we look at what's going on in the rest of the world, Europe perhaps weakening, concerns about Chinese growth. If we look outside of the United States of the data, perhaps you could make a stronger argument that the insurance rate cut that the market's pricing right now right. is perhaps
7: justified. Well, one of my favorite lines to use is that when the U.S. sneezes, is, the world catches a cold. right? But in this scenario, the U.S. is still the best house on a on a bad block, right? It's, it's the, the cleanest dirty shirt or whatever you want to call it. Mm. So right now, we're still kind of helping the globe when we look at GDP growth. And we're still steady, not necessarily rip your face off, rally strong, but steady. And all Powell needs to do is make sure that we continue that momentum and that yeah. speed. So yeah. if there's not really a threat to our growth, he doesn't really feel like he needs to stimulate. We do expect places like Europe, Japan, other parts of Asia to have to stay easy and easier than we are because they're a lot more exposed to trade and they're going to be under pressure much more than the United States will
1: be. I was making the point at the beginning of the show that this week we get numerous Commentary numerous sure. times of commentary from, from Jay Powell, three times in fact, this week. Right. Does he begin to just try and shift the thinking, the market thinking this week to say, hey guys, you're kind of jumping the gun here on weight hikes? If you're right, like uh, weight cuts, if right. you're right here, he so he has an opportunity every single
7: time he talks, we hang on every word, yeah, and he has an opportunity to really tell the market, We'll be there if dire circumstances present themselves. And and that's the important part here is that policy can put kind of a floor not only on market drops, but it can control volatility from here on out. And as long as he proves that he's willing to do that, control volatility and put a floor on some of those really sharp drawdowns if they should occur, then I think the market will be okay with it. The biggest risk right now is that, like you said, we're just a couple points off the, the biggest high. So risks are certainly to the downside, especially if the market is wishing for a cut and it doesn't get that.
1: You know, it's interesting. I asked Christina Hooper of Invesco yesterday what the big risk was, and she said that a trade deal doesn't happen. Sure. But based on what we're saying, we could argue that the big risk here is that a trade deal does happen, yeah. that the Fed has already cut rates and suddenly yeah, we're yeah, back yeah, in this.
7: I, yeah, and I and I don't disagree with her. I think it's going to happen in a different order. Yeah. We're going to get news that the Fed isn't going to cut rates as much as the market wants it to before we find out whether or not we're going to get a trade deal. Right. We do expect there to be some sort of deal between us and China, but not until closer to the end of the year. And until then, there's going to be just this kind of broader message of protectionism around the globe and keeping everything at home. That's what might royal markets and cause some volatility in the meantime. So what should investors be doing right now? Investors, You should stay invested. And there is a case to be made for easy central bank policy around the globe, still continuing to allow stock prices to slowly edge higher. That doesn't mean we're not going to have corrections in between and you definitely should have a diversified portfolio to try to protect yourself from some of those sharp drops. But this isn't a time when you're gonna run for the hills. No,
1: because as you said, there's a lot of supportive noises coming from central right. banks all around the world. Right. Yeah. Additive. Yeah. Liz Young, great to have you with. Thank us, Liz you. Liz Young there of BNY Mellon. All right, we are counting down to the market open. We are looking at a softer open. It is a Tuesday session, of course, three sessions of weakness that would add up to, but as we pointed out and had a discussion here, Jay Powell, what Jay Powell says about the outlook for the economy, the U.S. economy here, going to be front and center and continue to be so, particularly if Liz Young is right and they don't intend to cut rates in July. More to come. Julia Chesley, live from the New York Stock Exchange. And that was the opening bell for Tuesday's session. As expected, we are losing a bit of ground here as we get to shake up for the session ahead. Investors, of course, are going to be cautious until we hear from J-PAL this week, particularly in light of the conversation we were just having there with the Young. That's one analyst basically saying that J-PAL isn't going to cut rates in July. That would throw the cat among the pigeons, I can tell you, for investors right now. We're also, of course, heading into second quarter earnings season. set saying that overall corporate earnings could be down 2.6% year over year after falling some 0.3% in the first quarter. It's actually been three years since profits last fell for two quarters in succession. So it's going to be an interesting one. All right, let me walk you through our global movers in the session. Apple in focus. Rosenblatt securities analyst has downgraded the stock from neutral to sell, predicting new iPhone sales will be disappointed. Also notable that he didn't mention China sales concerns. The stock, of course, is still up some 25% this year. It's one of the best Dow performers so far in 2019, despite more broadly those concerns about China, as I mentioned. All right, IBM and Red Hat, also a focus of the day. IBM formally closing its $34 billion deal for the software company Red Hat. It's the biggest acquisition As we've discussed on the show in IBM's 100-year history, they agreed to pay $190 a share for Red Hat, a 63% premium. The Red Hat CEO and the management team will remain in place international. Also in focus, the hotel chain says it's being fined $124 million by the UK regulators over the Starwood Reservation database breach last year. It affected some 330 million customers, breaking those tough GDPR privacy rules set up in Europe. Marriott says it will contest the fine. Interesting to see these European data privacy laws well and truly kicking in. All right, let's talk Pepsi. Pepsi shares are higher on better than expected Q2 results, the healthier snacks and sparkling water helping fuel the sales growth in the quarter. Pepsi shares, though, having a banner year up some 20%. We're now joined by the CFO, Hugh Johnson. Hugh, fantastic to have you with us. Congratulations on a solid Q2 performance here. I look at the North American snap business, and once again, you continue to drive strong performance there overall for the performance. Talk us through the quarter.
8: Sure, happy to. Good morning, Julia. Nice to be with you. Uh, We felt like it was a a good, strong quarter for us. Uh, What we're probably most pleased about is we've got broad-based growth across the portfolio, from Frito-Lay to North America beverages, terrific performance. We've got Quaker back in growth in a nice way. And internationally, all three of our international sectors are showing good growth, developing and emerging markets growth about 8%. So in terms of the near-end performance, we feel very good about it. Because it's reflective of the investments we've made back in the business in advertising and marketing and in selling capability, the the basic fundamentals that we know drive the business. Perhaps most encouragingly is we're starting to see the benefits of, of some of the longer term investments that we're making in manufacturing capacity and in digitalizing the company. As we make those investments, we think this isn't just a short-term blip of improved performance. We think we've made a pivot to a higher growth rate for the company for an extended period of time, and we feel terrific about that. So I think things are going very, very well right now, and we're very optimistic about the future.
1: What about the beverage business as well? Is that uh, investment that you're making having an impact there too? Because this is ultimately challenged with with consumers changing taste, the uh, exposure of course with with fizzy drinks. Is it the investment having an impact in that part of the business too and as you say sort of pushing towards higher growth? I know data is also a huge part of what you're doing there and just trying to tap into ultimately what consumers want here.
8: We, we think actually the investments we're making in the beverage business are creating the right foundation for that business to perform well over the long term. We've really had to, had a couple problems to focus on. Number one was the Pepsi business. Uh, we needed to, fit, to increase the advertising levels. We needed to launch some new innovation. And we needed to get the execution and the marketplace better on that business. We're now seeing the impact of all of that, that spending as well as that management leadership impact. And as a result, the Pepsi business is up 3% in the first half of the year. So we feel like that business has turned around very nicely. Uh, the second big challenge was Gatorade. Uh, we had a couple of gaps in the portfolio where we were being challenged competitively. Number one was in zero-calorie sports drinks. We we got serious about making Gatorade Zero a big business for us at the beginning of this year. It's now twice the size of the, the competitive product in the marketplace. So we feel like we've got that half of Gatorade addressed. The other is there's an off the field consumption product that's hydration oriented. And we're launching actually this week, Bolt 24, which is a watermelon juice based product. We think it serves the needs of athletes off the field to play better than any product in the marketplace. And we have huge optimism in terms of that addressing the other competitive outage that we had. Uh, Last but not least is is Mountain Dew. Uh, We've launched the terrific innovation. So we feel like we have that piece of Mountain Dew in a good spot. Uh, the back half of the year, we'll see significantly more advertising on Mountain Dew. And we've also put a new regional selling structure in place. And because Mountain Dew is a much more regional business than the balance of our businesses, uh, we think we'll start to see the impact of that regional structure in the back half of the year, specifically on Mountain Dew. So I kind of feel like we've got the building blocks in place for all three of those big brands to do well. And if we have those right, the business is going to perform very, very well.
1: You, know, you sound incredibly optimistic and I, I look at some of the organic revenue growth that you're, you're pulling out in the international business, 10% in Latin America, 5% in, in Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa, 5% Asia, the Middle East and, and North Africa. And then I look at your forecast for this year and you've, you've maintained your forecast and I, I just wonder whether you're being a little bit conservative here.
8: Well, I I don't know that I would would say we're conservative. I I would say that we're realistic in terms of dealing with whatever potential potential issues may face us. I think we're we're confident in the way that we're running the business, and we'll see how the year lands. Right now, we've reiterated our guidance. We'll see how we land in the back half of the year.
1: I want to talk to you about China. I know you uh, continually get questions about the impact of, of the trade war and the tensions. But you know, for, for PepsiCo, you guys have been in China what for, for 37 years now. You're you're sort of your engine of growth, as as your CEO has called it before, in China, for China, with China is the sort of mnemonic that you use here. What are you seeing in this business? And as a a U.S. brand operating in in the company, are you facing sort of any challenges amid the sort of broader tensions over uh, trade negotiations here? What are you seeing?
8: No. Yeah, we really haven't seen much, Julia, in terms of impact or or sort of Uh, negativity towards us because we're an American company doing business in China. One of the great things about PepsiCo's brands is they tend to get adopted by local people very quickly and they tend to think of them as their own brands, not not an American brand. So our foods business with with Lay's and Quaker continues to do extremely well, growing double digits. It has for a number of quarters at this point. Uh, Frankly, we we expect that business to accelerate going forward. We, We think there's just a world of opportunity in China. Uh, the beverage business is always a challenging business. We, we've had ups and downs. We have a terrific bottling partner in Tingyi in China, and we are optimistic about the long term. We just need to continue to build out the business there. So, But in general, we see it, China as nothing but a big opportunity.
1: And I finally want to ask you about returning um, cash to, to shareholders here. You've said in the past, look, over a billion dollars worth of, of capex from the company this year versus eight billion dollars in, in dividends and, and share buybacks. It's a sort of political football at the moment for, for companies in the United States. And it will probably be so as we head towards the 2020 elections. How do you decide the sort of one billion versus eight billion dollar ratio and, and getting that right but both for the company, but also to keep shareholders happy, too?
8: Yeah, so our our overall cash return to shareholders this year will be about $8 billion, about $5 billion in dividends and about $3 billion in share repurchase. And that ratio is something that's been reasonably consistent for us for a a good period of time. A few years share repurchase has been higher, but I I think that ratio has been pretty consistent. Uh, I think we had that about right. Dividends are something that many of our investors like. They rely on. It gives them good, solid yield that they feel positively about. We're about a 3% dividend yield company, and they certainly appreciate that. And then beyond that, when we do share repurchases, we really allow the shareholders to choose. Do I want to take the cash return, or would I rather have my percentage ownership of the company increased by virtue of someone else choosing to cash out? So, I think we've got the balance in a in a reasonable spot on that front, and I, I think it's it's appropriate from a public policy perspective as well as from a shareholder return perspective. It
1: makes perfect sense, Hugh Johnson. So thank you very much for joining us on the show today, and. Uh Congratulations again on a a solid quarter. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but up next as IBM and Red Hat seal their mega deal, we'll be joined by the CEOs of both firms. Stay with us. to first move. Should Facebook be allowed to shift personal data between Europe and the United States? That's the question at the heart of a landmark court case getting underway in the EU's top court. The verdict could affect hundreds of thousands of tech companies. Hadass Gold joins me now. Data sharing, Hadass. The risk, of course, if that data shifts between Europe and the United States, it's hackable in the United States. It's also subject to surveillance in the United States. And that's the problem. Julia, that's exactly the problem. This is a case brought by
6: Max Schrems. If you recognize the name, it's because he is a Austrian uh, privacy activist and lawyer who has long been a thorn in the side of these big tech companies. And this case today in Luxembourg in the European Court of Justice is actually a continuation of a long saga Schrems has had, specifically against Facebook, but really against all of these data transfers between the European Union and the United States. The argument being that EU citizens have a right to certain privacy on their data, and that when that data is transferred to the United States, it's subject to U.S. surveillance. Now, Schrems is trying to argue in case that the replacement for a new agreement that was in place because of his last court case, which was sort of a surprise win for him, is actually not enough. And he is trying to argue that it's still subject to the U.S. surveillance and also that the Irish data commissioner who's in charge of regulating Facebook because that's where Facebook's European headquarters is, is not doing enough. And so today there's the is ongoing in Luxembourg. Facebook is arguing that if any of these agreements are struck down. If the court says that the current agreements that they have for data sharing are not good enough to protect Europeans' data privacy, that could affect transatlantic trade because, as you noted, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies, rely on these data transfers. And this could have huge implications for the business community, Julia.
1: Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? If companies have to hold these as entirely separate pools, it could actually mean more business actually being operated out of Europe and and the United States and vice versa. How long is it going to take to reach a verdict on this, do we think? We're not going to see a verdict today, that's for sure. It's going to take
6: a few months, likely in the early months of 2020. It's going to take some time. This case is literally going on right now in Luxembourg. Facebook has gone up as well. Uh, Schrems has gone up. So have various sort of activist groups on both sides. Well-known names like the American Civil Liberties Union of the United States are also involved providing expert testimony because privacy activists in the United States believe that if the court strikes down these agreements, it could even lead to reform in the United States. Yeah, and that's
1: the big key here. Alice Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, you're watching First Move. We'll be right back. To first move, I want to return to our top story now. IBM has completed its $34 billion acquisition of software firm Red Hat. And I'm pleased to say we're joined now by the CEOs of both firms, Ginny Rometty of IBM and Jim Whitehurst of Red Hat. Join us now. Congratulations to you both and thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Ginny, you reiterated uh, and you promised it was going to happen in the second half of this year. I make that nine days in. You must be elated. You, you don't hang around.
9: <laughs> yes, I am very elated. We both worked very hard and the teams have worked very hard to move this through. And I think it's, it's just a testimony of that it is the perfect match and that this is a great thing for our clients. So as you know, Julia, this is a big day for us. And this is the moment we reset the cloud landscape. And it's all about being the number one hybrid cloud provider in the world now.
1: We've also got some very pleased employees, I'm sure, today feeling significantly richer. Talk me through the feeling on this, on this day for you guys too.
10: Well, uh, yeah, we are a mission-driven company. Yeah, we're trying to drive open source to be the default choice for you know how clouds are built. And uh, as part of IBM, we think we can accelerate that journey. And I think for the, all of us on that mission, uh, this is a great day because it allows us to do do more uh, and do it all faster. Uh, I think that's really the driving force that uh, gets Red Hatters excited.
1: Yes, you're right. It's about the innovation in the future, less than the uh, less than the paycheck. I have to uh, make that point specifically. Ginny, talk to me about this because you've said, look, this is about the future of the hybrid cloud, about talking to clients and saying, look, we have options. This is open source technology. You can work with us. You can work with competitors, but we just want to show you the best options here for combining your own cloud, but also the public cloud too. What happens now?
9: Yes. Yeah, because. This is, I always say the number one reason this was an easy decision is that it is what clients need right now. And 80% of their workloads still need to move to the cloud. But this won't be a winner takes all and everything moves to one or two public clouds. Because all our clients that we deal with, they've got an existing IT estate, just like if you had a current home. And they're gonna modernize all those back ends, but they're gonna do it piece by piece. And for every application, you'll decide for regulatory reasons, data reasons, cost reasons. You're gonna say, I'll take a piece of it and put it on a cloud, a piece on a private, a piece I'm not gonna touch. Just like you'd remodel a house and decide to do room by room. And then by the way, we know they already have five to 15 clouds already spread all over. And now I have security and management concerns. So together what we're giving them is freedom of choice, but the ability to write something once and run it anywhere they need to. And that with skills as being the number one issue every client will cite is a very big deal and it's all in open source. So this is a hybrid multi-cloud play. And it's what they need to modernize in the future, and it allows them then one ability to manage no matter what cloud, public, private, who's ever, the IBM cloud, others, in a way to manage that consistently and securely. So it is the destination that we see, and it is the foundation for the architecture of the next generation.
1: You know, you've both reiterated since this deal was announced, the the open source aspect, the fact that, you know, you will continue to work and your technology gym will be available for other big cloud players out there too. What conversations have you been having with clients about that aspect but also what differentiates IBM here and their offering?
10: Well, look, so uh, open source is you know a powerful way that innovation happens, uh, and it's open and it's free and anyone can participate, and that's a really powerful thing for an enterprise most really honestly don't care about technology they care about delivering functionality for their customers (laughs) and so it's how do you take this open source innovation make it safe secure reliable how can you take that innovation and plug it back into your existing systems where all your data is where your customer data is and so you know when you're trying to build new functionality on your website or on a mobile application most of that technology is gonna be open source on that end, but how do you make sure it's safe and reliable, but how do you plummet all the way back to the back-end systems where the customer data is? And that's something I think we can uniquely bring. We bring a platform that new applications are built on. IBM brings a breadth of you know industry expertise, business process knowledge, application development expertise, and together we can offer really a unique value proposition to accelerate our clients' businesses.
1: I wanted to bring it back to the numbers here. You said to us in the past, look, this is going to be accretive, it's going to be positive from year one. We've had a couple of analysts out there saying, look, just because of the accounting, you'll have to have significant revisions to earnings this year and next year. Can you give us any clarity on that? You've said the long game here is obviously it's going to be a a revenue lift and it's going to be additive immediately. But what about some of those revisions? Can, Can you give us any detail? Yes.
9: Sure. So what first round revenue, as you just mentioned, 200 basis points Cogger over five years as an increase to IBM. And then Jim's built a great company. And unlike a lot of cloud companies, this is a very profitable company. So uh, both gross margin and free cash flow are accretive in year one. EPS is accretive at the end of year two, and then what you're just referring to now is because it is such a profitable company, um, you have something called purchase accounting. And so what we'll be doing is, you know, we have our earnings uh, next week, just in a couple of days. We'll do our uh, our two Q earnings, IBM's normal two Q earnings, and then just shortly after that, a couple of days, uh, August second, we'll be doing an investor briefing to update then on the implications for 2019 and then the midterm for IBM, uh, given some of those things.
1: Makes perfect sense, so we'll wait and uh, watch for that. Jim, talk to me about the fact that you've both said you're going to remain independent, the culture's not going to change, you're going to continue to be Red Hat and who you are, this is just going to be combining two really powerful forces here for, for the blood crowd future. Is that still the mandate here and will be continued?
10: Absolutely. Yeah, we've been planning for the last eight months and everyone we've worked with at IBM, I think understands that. You know, we talk a lot that our Source of advantage is a capabilities advantage around how we work in open source communities and how we can harden open source to deliver for customers. And that capability is so tied up in our culture. And what we've talked about is this is two cultures working together to deliver unique value for our clients that we couldn't do apart. It's not two cultures coming together to become one. And look, we we've celebrated in open source communities for a long time. Diversity adds value. Diversity of background. Diversity of belief. Diversity and ways of working, and I really do think the the fact that there are differences between the two actually make us uh, more powerful and more capable uh, working together in that way.
9: I think the future and the future hybrid. That, yeah, that's right. The future hybrid and to be multi-cloud, Jim does need to be a distinct unit.
1: We look forward to seeing you guys progress. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Ginny Rometty, the IBM CEO there, and of course the Red Hat CEO, Jim Whitehurst. Guys, thank you so much. All right, and that just about wraps it up for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. You can listen to our podcast as well on cnn.com slash podcast. Even watching First Move, time to go make yours.